This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 48, a review of the recent press releases for Five Drugs in Development, plus, from the vault, a section from our Nash Tag 22 coverage considering different issues surrounding the trial designs and use of drug and diagnostic combinations. As this conversation starts, I refer back to a comment Acaro Chief Development Officer Kitty Yale made in a January 2021 podcast that Acaro believes the future of Nash therapy might not hinge on combinations. While praising the trial results, Stephen Harrison states it might be premature to discuss exactly how this drug will be used, due in part to questions about its modes of action and delivery, its potential for tolerability issues, or possible reduction of effect over time or possible cost. I ask whether it's possible that this drug like BMS's FGF21 failed agent Peg Bill Furman might wear off over time. Stephen suggests that differences in the chemical structure of the two FGF agents mean that Froxifermin might not do so. Praising the drug, he suggests it might serve well as an induction therapy for the first six or 12 months of NASH therapy, particularly in F3 or maybe F4 patients, followed by a lower cost, better tolerated long-term oral regimen. He then goes on to discuss the next trial, Poxel's Destiny 1 trial of PXL65, which is a novel proprietary deuterium-stabilized pioglitazone. That's a mouthful. Starting by describing the molecule design and benefits compared to basic pioglitazone. He shares results about impact on liver fat, fibrosis, NAS activity score, and dual successes on fibrosis and NAS score together. As this conversation winds down, Jorn Schottenberg describes other KOL's enthusiasm for pioglitazone, and Mazanuri Dean and Louise Campbell praise its oral dosing and potential as a maintenance therapy in NASH. Last week, I described NASH drug development as heading into an exciting time, which made this week's podcast what Maz and Nouradine and Jorn Schottenberg each described as a wow episode. We have all thirsted for legitimate good news for so long. These press releases suggest we might not have that much longer to wait. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Kitty Yale, Chief Development Officer at Acaro, was with us for the pre-meet on the FDA call in January of 2021. And in that discussion, part of what came up was the solution was ultimately going to be combination therapy. And Kitty said, we may choose to differ. She was pretty firm about that. And at the time, I said, gee, that's, that's, that's a gutsy thing to do. But looking at these data, you can understand uh, if these data hold up, why, as you say, uh, monotherapy might not be a controversial thing to, to take a look at. Mazen Nuruddin. Yeah, I like to throw controversial things here in the locker. <laughs> Stephen Harrison. I think it's a little premature to say where we're going to use this drug and how it'll be used. I do think the results are very positive, but just to be balanced here, there are some concerns with this particular mechanism about tachyphylaxis and, you know, developing antidrug antibodies. And so I think it is prudent to continue to follow. And I like the trial design here because patients, we're not done, right? We're going to follow these people out for another six months. We're not going to do another liver biopsy, but we'll have all the NITs. We'll be able to see if those changes Changes, those positive changes we're seeing are still improving. Have they plateaued? Have they started to worsen again? And we'll have these antidrug antibodies. We'll have ways of assessing for a plateau effect or even a regression. Good study design, intuitive, thoughtful about where we still have unanswered questions with this mechanism, but positive data nonetheless. So I just wanted to throw that in. There's also a well-compensated cirrhotic trial with this drug underway called the Symmetry Trial. And they did comment in the press release that results should be out in the second half of 2023. This is a late breaker oral at AASLD, if you're interested. Stephen, real quickly, just one question that you just brought up, which is that if I recall the Peg Bell-Furman results correctly, Peg Bell-Furman did regress. Is there any reason to think based on the differences in the drugs that this will have a, a better outcome? Or is that something we're just going to have to look and see? Yeah, I mean, I think so. They're completely different FGF-21s. I mean, not all FGF-21s are created equal. This is a fusion protein 
protein. It's, it's just wired differently from the beginning. It works on all FGF receptors except four. And that's an FGF19 FXR type mediated pathway. So the 21s don't work on F4, FGF4, but this particular compound has balanced potency against one, two, and three, whereas I believe the BMS was probably weaker on two and three, uh, although don't hold me to that. The other thing I would say about combination therapy, there's combination therapy and then there's the idea of induction therapy, you know, hitting them hard, kind of bringing them back from the edge and then switching them to something that's more palatable for the long term that's oral. That's where I'm putting drugs like this. The juice is worth the squeeze so far, no doubt. The view is worth the climb. The harder the climb, the better the view. You know, these are are injectables. They do have some GI tolerability, although not severe. But I mean, we're talking about this is a lifelong disease. So we have positive impacts like this in such a short period of time. And these are sustained in a phase three trial. To me, in my clinical practice, I could see using this drug for six months, maybe a little longer, having a positive impact, assessing that with some of our NITs that we have at our disposal, and then potentially switching them over to something that's better tolerated for the long haul. And then if they have to go back on it for whatever reason, we could cycle it back on there or whatever. We're learning from the GLP-1 class that uh, people don't tend to want to take these for the long haul in many of our patients. So how do we optimize its utilization to the best benefit? I think that's what we need to learn how to do with this class of drug. And I would still echo that. We have talked about this antibody issues before in a previous episode. We talked about could we look at something like the IBD drugs and all that and that justify the concept that these drugs should not be ongoing for a long time in induction therapy versus switching to something else. Yet with these encouraging results, you could have people normalizing or getting much better within the induction period and then they can rely on weight loss and exercise. And I quote the two two stages fibrosis data. If someone with F2 gets that, you may argue that some of people that they will normalize quickly. So a lot to see. Um, I think the efficacy, I'm glad we're talking about high efficacy now and if we need one drug versus two drugs again and talking about side effects and how we can mitigate those and do the least duration. So definitely want a better spot today. All right, I better keep rolling because we have 13 minutes to go through three more programs. Yeah, we'll try to get through on time, keep our audience you know, at the edge of their seats, which is important. So let's roll over to another paired liver biopsy phase 2B trial. This one with POC. So Poxel has a trial that's called Destiny 1. What a name for a trial, right? So this is a paired liver biopsy 36-week study, phase 2B trial. To me, it reminds me a lot of the phase 2 Madrigal study. 36-week trial, liver biopsies were done at baseline and end of treatment. The primary endpoint, however, was PDFF. Now, as opposed to Madrigal, which was PDFF at week 12, this is PDFF change at week 36. Liver biopsies were done. So there's going to be histology here as well. But just to give you a brief intro to the drug PXL065 that was studied in this particular trial. This is going to introduce a new word for many of you. It's called deuterium. So this is a novel proprietary deuterium stabilized R-pyoglitazone. So if you remember pyoglitazone, it's a PPAR gamma agonist, been studied extensively for NASH all the way back to, gosh, before the hills got dusty and I was a a junior fellow that looked much younger than Yorn and Mazen. Uh, I mean, it's been around for a long, long time. 
time. So we know pioglitazone is a one-to-one mixture of two mirror image compounds, an R and an S stereoisomer. And using deuterium, you can stabilize each stereoisomer and characterize their different pharmacologic properties. And so in vitro, PXL065 was shown to target essentially uh, the one particular isomer here. So that was the R. R is where you get the biological activity. S tended to be associated more with the side effects we would associate with pioglitazone, weight gain, fluid retention, that sort of thing. This is like taking the best of pioglitazone and joining them together with deuterium. That's why we say it's a deuterium-stabilized R pioglitazone. Knowing that, let's talk about the study. 117 subjects, three different doses versus placebo. So four cohorts of patients. Primary endpoint, liver fat content reduction at week 36. Key secondary endpoints on histopathology. So just to jump right in on the results, liver fat content reduction at week 36, 21 to 25 percent reduction. When we look at that magic 30 percent relative reduction, 40 percent of the overall treated population hit that number. And that was statistically significant. It did meet its primary endpoint. Key secondary endpoints started with fibrosis here, 31 to 50 percent in the drug-treated arms versus 17 percent for placebo. When you look at all of them together, you pool all the treated arms together, 39 percent had a one-stage improvement in fibrosis versus 17 percent for placebo. Now, Worsening of fibrosis, I think, is an important topic as well. It was 9 to 12% for the treated arms at 36 weeks versus 26% for placebo. At least a two-point improvement in an athlete activity score, 50% for the treated arms, 30% for placebo. Focusing on NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement, that stringent double endpoint, 26% for drug-treated groups versus 13% placebo. And this is pool data again. Was that statistically significant? The two of them versus placebo? No, no. So this wasn't powered for statistical significance. It did not hit the stat sig button. So more just a numerical trend at this point. One of the important points that people pay attention to with this is if you want to differentiate yourself from pioglitazone, how well do you do that on the AE profile? And I just wanted to mention from a body weight perspective, the press release commented there was no dose-dependent increase in body weight and a minimum least squared mean increase of about 0.68 kilogram in the high dose 22.5 milligram dose. So again, positive results here in this phase 2b trial, particularly on the primary endpoint, but there was trends on key histopathologic endpoints, particularly fibrosis here, that I think deserve some discussion and attention. It turned out to be well tolerated with minimal weight gain to no weight gain. So let's open that up for discussion. Yarn Schottenberg. You know, if I think of pioglitazone and talk with Ken Cousy or people who've been using that for some time, they always stress the concept that this is making your fat tissue more healthy. So I think it's a different mechanism here where the liver is being cured through some effects that we also get off liver tissue. On the other hand, the the histology data for the pio has been really supportive in the New England Journal paper and, and still some people use it. And so I think this is a refinement here with good tolerability and then potentially maintaining the efficacy 
see something that'll be very interesting and probably adding to the armamentarium we're seeing that we might be using in the future because it's compared to the other compounds we discussed again and wholly a totally different moa speaks to metabolic you know healthiness if you'd like i mean i'm along the same line and uh, Stephen, you brought up great points it's interesting we presented akira first and then poxel and i just want to point out that this is an oral drug compared to an injectable drug so don't underestimate that and the efficacy i think it's excellent of what they have achieved they got what they needed to get the side effects are mitigated compared to other PPARs. They have efficacy and there's a positive signal with an oral drug. So this is definitely a player that needs to continue. And I go back now and this is this is what I would like to see in a combination therapy with induction therapy and this drug or followed by induction therapy. So congratulations to this work and I think it's, it's very promising and other positive results. Louise Campbell. You can't underestimate the ability for it to be delivered in an oral mechanism. There are lots of people who just aren't going to want or to use injection. But what's exciting with all of these drugs is all of the different mechanisms. It gives us a great set to be moving forward for. And it is exciting for people coming into trials and looking to recruit in the future years. Then there's certainly uh, more excitement and opportunity now. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content in this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the recent NICE meeting evaluating use of ECTE in community settings in the UK. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.